1: This week, the very first Halloween episode we ever put out there in the world. It's our Scary Stories series. There's now 14 of them. And this, the first one, debuted in November of 2011. It's Scary Stories 1, colon,
2: eek!
1: Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was David Bucks up top doing some very glassy sound and stuff for us. And this is Jonathan Gear behind me now. He is at Jonathan Gear. That's G E E R dot com. We're calling today's episode Eek, as in. <laughs> You see, recently, it was October. (laughs) And that's the perfect time of year for a scary tale. Why, I myself had a scary tale two nights in a row last week. But that's neither here nor there. What's here is Ptolemy Slocum. He's been on The Sopranos, Nurse Jackie and The Wire, among other things. Ptolemy is a brilliant actor, a brilliant improviser, and a great teacher. He's taught me quite a few things in my day. Because what goes around comes around in this little universe of uh, spinning yarn. Here's Ptolemy at the Risk Show in Los Angeles at the Nerd Melt Theater with a story we call... Kidnapped.
3: I have a story that I have not shared with anyone. It starts at a um, family reunion in uh, Breckenridge, Colorado. Breckenridge, Colorado is a ski resort, and this was in the summertime. It was a huge family reunion. My grandmother's sisters. So we have an old woman, and then two other older women, and then all the family underneath, just a massive human span. I don't know if you've been to a uh, massive family reunion, but you don't know anybody there. It's kind of like going to a party with somebody that you're friends with and they're friends with people, but you only know that person, and that person is your mother. Um, But it has a kind of combined effect of like an elementary school reunion where you're supposed to know people there, but you don't recognize them because time has wounded them so severely (laughs) that it's like, I don't know any of you. Uh, I was 13 years old, I should say that. It's a precarious time of great awkwardness. Uh, in a very awkward situation, so please try to understand what happens. Um, yeah, so that was bad. Um, combined is we have these townhouses. We have a little collection of townhouses for all these human beings, and uh, there are all these like walkways in between them. These fucking walkways. Um, bullshit. Um, And uh, even though there's a bunch of space, there's not enough room for everyone. So I'm sleeping on floors and couches, uh, various places each night. I guess because I'm 13, it's a, uh, I'm the most resilient member. Uh, So they put padding down, I just like sleep wherever, like uh, an adorable (laughs) homeless person. Um, So I'm angry, and and I'm 13. (sighs) Middle of the day where there's less activities with other individuals that you don't know, I crawl into a bed. I don't know whose bed this is. I don't even know whose townhouse I'm in, literally. And I start masturbating. I am 13 years old. And at that time, masturbating is more of like an occupation that you have. It's like a focus, you have a job to do, and you really take it seriously. I was doing a version of masturbation that's not like the sit up, sit like on the side of the bed with your hand masturbation. It was more like use the bed as friction style. Um, This unfortunately is important to talk about I'm sorry Uh, so and it's hands free so you kind of feel like you're flying it's a nice um, (laughs) um, I've not told this story before Um, so I am going at it I don't remember what I was thinking about I remember I had a shirt on and no pants and no no, uh, sheet just me and my little butt moving um, and I was like kind of working it and I felt something uh, and it wasn't like I heard something. I don't think it was a shadow or it was like a human like a spirit connection of something. But I just remember turning my head and there was a window in the, in the bedroom, which makes no sense. First of all, there's a window, one of those skinny windows And one of the walkways between townhouses and in the window was an aunt of some kind staring in the window. And she was kind of like leaned, so she wasn't like walking by. She had like committed to like standing there and she was like looking in the window, kind of perturbed. I also knew she had been there for a little while because she like stunned like when I turned, like, like some kind of monster like rotated on the bed. And she was like, oh, and she immediately like walked away and I don't know who it is. I know she was at the family reunion, but I still to this day don't know who it is, which is weird. Sorry. Um, she had a little polo shirt and the collar was up just in the back. Some kind of asshole. Um, she had short blonde hair. Um and I think she didn't know to be fair, I don't think she knew what was happening because I think she just saw this like thing moving in the bed and then a face like rotated towards her and she's like, oh and they kept walking. But now I have an enemy at the family reunion. So I have to see this woman at like the events. They had this like rec room in the middle of things, and there's like a big like dinner section, and I have to see her. Like across the room, and I remember, like, this is the tone that I felt in high school where there's like popular groups or like people that like make fun of you. Because anytime she would like talk to someone, I like knew she was telling them that I was masturbating earlier in somebody else's bed, or maybe warning them. I didn't even know whose bed that was. So it was a really awkward situation. It made me more antisocial. And we didn't talk, but we were, like, aware of each other. And she was, like, a younger mom, so I think she was trying to be cool with it or maybe, like, trying to be, like, whatever. But we didn't talk that night, and, the, and um, I don't know. I just felt, like, more reserved. So that night, I'm sleeping on the floor again at the foot of my mother's bed. Um, and she's up in this loft situation. So these, like, townhouses had, like, a bedroom and then, like, a loft that you walk up with open space, kind of like up here. And I'm sleeping at the the foot of her bed, um, facing the mountain, my feet facing the mountain. And uh, I'm like falling asleep. I'm already like upset. My mom's, I haven't told anyone obviously. I'm telling you guys. And um, it's dark, everyone's asleep and I feel something on my feet that um, kind of feels like your feet fall asleep but it's like kind of active falling asleep and it moves up like my shins. So I'm like laying there literally like this because I remember this. And uh, it starts moving up my shins, and it's kind of like your body falls asleep. Uh, Not in a cold way, just like – and not in – it's just a bit of like a tingle, like a sensation. And it comes up my knees and like uh, through my body. And it's very strange. It goes over my hands this way, so it doesn't go from here down. Um, And it was very interesting. It was like moving up, and I was like, what is happening? And it's a tingle sensation. And there there was a tingle from up here, uh, my head, because there was like a fear – But it moved up my body, like through my torso, and then up my mouth. And as soon as it crossed my eyes, I got this image. And it was the same area of Colorado. It was in summertime, and the grass was yellow. And there was a house uh, toward the mountain, about 200 yards away, a little like cabinet house. And there's a man standing in front of the house with two children. And I was a woman. I was wearing black and I lived probably about 120 years ago. And I was just silently standing there in this location where I probably was currently, but um, a long time ago, just looking at my family. And there was some like sadness there, but I didn't quite understand what was happening. And at that time, I literally felt like someone was like invading my body and it kept moving like up into my head area. And I remember something my mother said about kidnapping. She said, if you're ever taken by someone, um, you should yell really loudly your name and your address. Uh-huh. And this, this was like a while ago in my life. I was 13 at the time. And I, for some reason, I remember that. And in my head, like really, as much as I could, I said, my name is Ptolemy Slocum. I live at 633 Hampton Drive, Lodi, California, 95342. And um, really loudly, but like, and I kept repeating it. And all of a sudden, this thing moved out the same way it came, like through my torso, like straight out. Uh, my feet and left and I sat up and I, I was like <gasps> and um, and that was the end of it and it, it had passed and that was weird um, and my mom woke up and she was like leaned up I don't even think she asked me what was going on I was just like really quiet and I didn't tell anybody anything and I don't know what happened Now, I am not saying at this time that ghosts exist. I don't know what happened. I don't necessarily believe in them myself. Uh, I know what happened to me, and it was very strange. And it changed my experience um, of the whole event. And they say um, that that thing, like people suggest that uh, Jesus did return from the dead only because the behavior of the disciples was totally different after they saw him like return from the dead. They're suddenly like their behavior changed and somehow that's proof. But I will say the next day, um, I run into this woman. Uh, We have an event and I think she's attempting to like talk to me about the fact that she saw me masturbating and she's taking the high road as some kind of adult and it happens and it's natural because I could see something in her eyes that she was like trying to tell me. But I looked up at her and I felt very adult about it because I didn't give a shit about that anymore. <laughs> like, I, I, I had worse things happen to me on this trip than you catching me masturbate into a mattress that wasn't my own. <laughs> and I looked up at her, and she was like, "Up," oh. and she turned around and, like, walked away. And I was changed forever from this event. So all I can say is I don't know what happened, but I know that it affected me, and it's worse than masturbating. Thank you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vincent Price.
4: If I am feeling particularly ambitious, I make a real curry, plus all the side dishes. Many curries are made with meats on the bone, but for my guests, I only want to serve small boys. I like to look around for some really exotic and very hot ones. (laughs) That's the way my wife likes them. I then skin the boys and take all of the meat from the bone. The easy way is to stab them one at a time with a fork and heat them over a gas flame on the stove until the skin bursts. It then peels right off. (laughs) What fun. To make the curry itself is child's play, a very simple but a very elegant dish. I generally lower all the lights and burn a little child to help create a mood.
5: It was about five years ago I had planned a big conference to take place in St. Petersburg, Florida. The last night... I decided to go out and have dinner with everybody. And uh, it was about one in the morning, we were walking home on the sidewalk, and we came upon a human head. It had short hair, and it was severed close to the head. There were like pink and white tendons coming out. There wasn't much neck there. And there wasn't much blood. And I thought, this isn't real. There's not enough blood. Two people, two of our group, they just walked away. Like, we don't want to see this. And four of us stayed, and we were like a bunch of dogs circling a piece of meat or something, or something curious. I mean, we we didn't know what to think of it. We were literally walking around it, like, this is just not possible, I said, hey, maybe we're on candid camera, and everybody, like, really (laughs) wanted that to be true, and we all looked up, like, yeah, okay, you can come out now, (laughs) and then I actually, like, touched it with my foot. I just kind of wanted to touch it, because, I mean, we were all just not believing this, and we were drunk, and I didn't, like, nudge it very hard, but I could feel the weight, you know. It was, it was, like, not plastic. And then this guy, he bent down, and he actually did look at the eyes, I think. He got real serious. He said, this is the real thing. Call 911 right now. So I called 911, and she said, where are you? And I walked over to the intersection to see where we were. And then, uh, so she said, stay on the phone with me, and somebody will be there soon. I was worried that they weren't going to believe me. And as soon as I I knew she believed me, I started shrieking. (laughs) And then one of my other coworkers said, come here. And she showed me her sweater. She had a white sweater. And her white sweater had like dark spots, like drops. And they were drops of blood. On her white sweater. And then she pointed up. I looked up, and the body was in the tree! The cops came, and they were really apologetic, sort of. They said, oh, we're sorry you had to find this. And I think we were in shock, and they were, like, grossed out. So then I went... I went to my hotel room, and I I didn't even take a shower, which surprises me. I think I was still in shock. Like, you know, blood dripping down on you, you should take a shower. And I woke up early just to see if it was on the news, and it wasn't. Later, we all came back to the office and started looking at the obituaries for St. Petersburg, and we found out, we're pretty sure... It was a woman who was 76 years old. They just said, you know, beloved wife of so-and-so and and mother of so-and-so. She was a mother. And she lived in that building with her husband. And they treated it like a suicide in the newspaper. They didn't say the cause of death. And that is probably what it was. But, you know, I kept on saying, don't assume that, for all we know, her husband pushed her out the window. I mean, we really don't know. It was just weird. The thought that somebody did commit suicide and, and you know, probably didn't intend to make a mess. And there's just the chance that some strangers would find this situation.
1: his Risk, in just a moment, we're going to hear Ben Grant of Reno 911 say,
6: There's Granny Boo. Bye, Granny Boo. But first, let's review what we've
1: just heard. After Ptolemy Slocum, we heard Mr. Vincent Price giving his little recipe there for small boys. After that, a woman named Beth... Uh, with a story we call Gimme Head. Must confess... I forgot to write down Beth's last name. (laughs) Then we heard a not very tasteful collage by Jeff Barr called Decapitechno, his little tribute to the guillotine, which was featured on his most recent Mangled Meditations podcast. You should check that out. It's crazy as all hell. Uh, We heard Monster Party by Dan Rosen, and this is Devil's Candy Shop by Nigel Simmons behind me now. An important thing that you don't hear so much on the podcast is the completely improvised story. The story that was completely unplanned. You just got up on your feet and started telling it and going with it. And we're going to feature one of those right now. This will be the first time we've ever featured our two hosts of our Los Angeles risk shows. Uh, The shows that we now do at the Nerd Melt Theater out in LA. This is the hilarious Pete Holmes and Kumail Nanjiani up on stage. All they do is improvise. And this little story happened to come out of them at the last show. Pete Holmes and Kumail Nanjiani. This is Evil Walks.
7: You know, I love horror movies, but I get, like, scared easily. I'm not courageous at all. This happened to me. I was in Chicago, and it was me. I had three roommates, and we had a whole house, and we had the basement, we had the regular floor, and then the attic, and nobody's in the attic, you know? And Katie, one of the roommates, doesn't have a job. Whenever we would come home from work, she's like, there are people walking around our attic. And we would go, shut the fuck up. Get a job,
8: you know? (laughs) Rent is due, Katie. I want to interject, that's how they all start. That's how every, if you ever watch... Every horror movie starts... The real ones, too. The Discovery Channel, it's like the guy goes to work all day and he comes home and the housewife is like, I heard screaming. He's like, fucking do the dishes. Yeah, Coffee's warm. Yeah, (laughs) Do you know how hard I work at the sprocket plant? I have to come home to you telling me Uh, you heard the noise of what had to be a man with wooden teeth grinding his teeth? (laughs) Fuck you. Yeah.
7: (laughs) Go on. Uh, So so she says this for weeks and we dismiss her. Just walking. One person? Just walking, it's somebody in the attic. It's very scary. Don't be dismissive. You were. The most evil people in the world walk, Pete. Hitler was a walker. Big walker. He Big walker.
8: Every day with a brisk oh, he walk. He would
7: make hundreds of people walk for him. That was he would watch idea. people
3: walk.
8: It was really an exercise, Rich. <laughs> this is getting weird. Oh, my God.
7: <laughs> so for weeks, she's like, there are people walking. And then one day we're home. And uh, she's like, come into my room. So we, go, we all go into a room. And we hear people, we hear somebody,
8: Pete, walking, like walking around. That's true. Fu- yeah.
7: And I freaked the fuck out. And we start doing that. It was just the- regular
8: walking, though. It wasn't like one step and then a drag, was it? That's a standard zombie walk. Go on. I could handle a zombie. <laughs>
7: one zombie. Uh, yeah. I think my number is, zombie. I could do five,
8: I think. You got to know your zombie limit. I think I could take. What's your zombie number? I think I'm going to put it at seven just because I'm uh, hulking. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that I would be oh, yeah. apt at fighting them. I just think I could take, take a couple that I wasn't even aware were, were clinging on to me. You it takes I mean? one bite, Pete. Yeah, no, and I'd be gone. a zombie by the end of it. But yeah. I...
7: <laughs> <laughs> There'd be eight from seven. That's how bad you are at fighting zombies. Yeah. Uh, left,
8: left for Dead 2, go So on.
7: somebody walking around, and I freak the fuck out, and we start doing that yelling, whispering thing, you know, like, what are we going to do? That kind of thing. That's how we're talking. And then I'm like, well, if there's somebody up there, and Holly hears his silence, he's gonna totally be on to us. So we decide to have like a fake decoy conversation to throw him off. Like, like a we radio have like play. like parallel conversations. Like we're like, what are we gonna do? We should make cake. I am freaking out right now. I like chocolate. <laughs> so that if there's somebody up there, all he hears is silence, broken by chocolate cake.
8: <laughs> which is just a normal day yeah
7: just a normal day screaming chocolate cake and terror more walking for me (laughs) I'll just walk around (laughs) but Uh, this is a
8: ghost so who cares well
7: we don't know what it is I don't don't believe in ghosts I think it's somebody it's
8: either it's a man or everything you believe is not true it
7: it could be a woman Pete
8: No woman's walking around in an attic all day.
7: <laughs> women walking around—that's
8: no, sexist. No, no, no. Many is, women are murderers. Sexist, okay. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, please. Uh, I'm kind of saying it takes the uh, thick-headedness of a man to be like, "This is <laughs> this is enough." You know, this is how I choose <laughs> to live. I, I got a window, and berries fall in from <laughs> time to time. A woman would be like, "There's more to life." <laughs> so uh,
7: we free- and I don't know what to do because I'm like I'm a beta male. We were all betas. This is a house of betas, you know. We don't know what to do so we call, we have one and this is what you got uh, have one alpha friend you know Joey he lives in like Washington and he like he hunts bears and then he makes jerky out of them like alpha is fuck so so we call him I think and that's we're like, like
8: an illegal type of alpha is that legal yeah you can hunt bear you can hunt and eat bears bear it oh, sounds just more one. badass. Oh, I'm sorry. Everybody
7: gets one, so choose wisely, you know? Know your zombie number. Know your bear number. Everybody says one. Everybody. So so we call him, and we're like, there are people walking around our attic. What do we do? He just has a crossbow. Well, he says, he says, uh, go up there and check, which had not even occurred to us. Our strategy was to talk about fake cake mm-hmm. until the lease ran out. He's like, go up there and check, uh, and then I'm like, well, what are we going to do if there is somebody there? Like, oh, hey, we made chocolate cake. Scary hobo, do you want a slice? Scary I, I am now
8: picturing just like a classic Halloween hobo with the gray makeup yeah. here yeah, and the, outline like, yeah, and the he's, hat and he's the hat. He's
7: eating boot, shoelaces. Boot soup. Yeah.
8: <laughs> he's definitely eating boot soup boot and soup. has a nickname probably, which is Soup. <laughs> soup. Old Soup. soup. loves boot you soup. You know Soup moved into an attic? Good for Soup. <laughs> 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 That's what his friend, the Colonel. The Colonel. There's always one called the Colonel. What's wrong with that? So,
7: but then we decide. All right, we have to go and check. You know, and we nominate me. I have
8: to go and check. And what uh, was the test? Was there a test of strength or anything?
7: no? They were just like nodded, and I didn't say it fast enough because I was. <laughs> Fucking terrified, yeah. And so, so it's the
8: roof, and there's like a door to the roof. You know what is it called? Yeah, one of those. Uh, they call attic. it a ghost hole. Actually, I'm pretty. It's so, only for evil. This is so evil may get around our house easily. So there's a zombie hole over yeah, there. The paranormal and, uh, activity hole. So we need a ladder
7: to get up there. House of Betas. We don't have a ladder. Oh, and one doesn't come down and knock out. Jack no,
8: Nicholson? no, no, no. Even to get to it, we have to. Oh, so there's we. No string that there's no string, Pete. But that's, string free that's, ghost That's hold. standard ghost. You, you hear something and then you look in the hallway and the string is moving. That's standard. Well, this was not how this If I was went. giving a tour of this home, I'd be like, this is original molding. That string will move when a ghost is here. Uh. <laughs>
7: you will know when to shit
8: yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. lot of activity here. A lot. Of, I shouldn't be telling you this. <laughs> uh,
7: so so they, we pull a chest of drawers from my room, we put it under there, and they give me a flashlight. And I'm like, what am I going to do if somebody's there? So they also hand me a butcher knife. Because if somebody's there, I'm just going to murder them. <laughs> I'm just going to be like, chocolate cake! Stab, stab, stab. Guys, there was somebody there, but I killed him. Soup, no! I'm going to shower and pack my bags. Give me a half hour before you call the cops. The uh, then I just ride trains and use payphones the rest of my <laughs> life. And every time I try and sleep, I see the light leave a hobo's face, you know? Oh, God. Because you don't forget that shit. That's no. Breaking Bad. Everything is different after that. And then that spreads around the community. You hear what happened yeah. to Soup. <laughs> oh, soup got, oh, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. So, But then I'm like, okay, so if it's a floor and it's just a ghost hole and I poke my head up, it's just my head and the floor. Very vulnerable situation. Yeah. He could just whack him on me on the head with a baseball bat and I just die. It's I kinda, fucking he, die. He has a bat too. Uh, yeah,
8: he has a bat. But it's not standard size. He kind of like fashioned it out of a smaller bat. Yeah, it's got like nails in it. Oh, yeah. yeah. A crooked nail.
7: So I'm like, what am I going to do? They're going to baseball bat me. So my roommates are like, we need to get you a helmet. <laughs> House of Betas, we don't have a helmet. So we get a cooking none of this is lies. We get a fucking cooking pot. (laughs) None of this is lies. And I put that on my head, but it comes down to here so I can't see out of it. So we get a fucking spaghetti strainer. None of this is lies. And I put the spaghetti strainer which if somebody baseball bats me on the head, I still die. (laughs) They just have to get a new pasta strainer. (laughs) Or feel really awkward any time they make spaghetti. Oh, you know? God. Isn't this the colander that Kamel died in? Shouldn't we have got a new one? Yeah. No, it works. Kamel's still dead over there. Oh. That day, I imagine they're making spaghetti.
8: <laughs> that, that's when they thought of it. Like, oh, spaghetti. Yeah, if this we doesn't have to use work, this. we're going to make spaghetti. Yeah. And the cake.
7: Yeah. I hope this is marinara. Oh. Oh. It's my
8: brains.
1: There's a lot of down.
7: worse
8: jokes that end with, I hope this is marinara. Yeah. Much worse. <laughs> yeah. You can write uh, your own. So,
7: so I put this spaghetti strainer on my head. I swear, and, uh, and I'm up crawling. And right before I get up there, I swear Katie's friends from out of town show up. And I'm there with a spaghetti strainer on my head, flashlight in one hand, butcher knife in the other, crawling over a chair. I look like somebody whose parents couldn't afford a Halloween costume. <laughs> like, you're a spaghetti head, <laughs> and you have a butcher knife. So I get up there, and I am so freaked out. Because, I mean, I've heard footsteps, Pete. I'm fucking very scared. The scariest kind of steps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't see anything because the flashlight is weak. And I'm seeing the world through holes big enough to let water through, but not pasta, you know? Yeah. Like, very small holes. It's very little
8: rascals.
7: Yeah. 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 No. I, I, and I don't know why. We were, like, stuck in this thing of, like, being horrified. And uh, we never found anything. But right after that... The noises stopped. We never found it. But I'm sorry,
8: there was nothing up there?
7: Yeah, well, if there was somebody up there, that would have been the first thing I would have mentioned. Like, fuck Halloween, three years ago I murdered a hobo. <laughs> <laughs> That's my spooky story. I'm haunted by it right now. Yeah. I laugh so I don't cry.
6: <laughs> I took a risk and
2: then I died. Now I'm dead locked inside a box in the dark and I thought I was smart but I'm not but I'm not that's what happens when you risk that's what happens when you risk
9: I had a very untraditional upbringing I went to an all-girls school so One traditional childhood experience that I never had was going to camp. Uh, I was 17 years old and we went to Italy for uh, one month for an arts camp. It was the first time that I'd ever really lived, I guess, away from home uh, without my parents in a camp-like setting. I went to the same school growing up from kindergarten through 12th grade, and so I had a very uh, well-established reputation as a strong student and a good person and a good friend and all that kind of stuff. And I never realized how important that was to my happiness there, because when I went to this new camp, I had no reputation to rely on. And I realized that every new environment you enter, you have to establish yourself as what you want to be because people have no idea who you are otherwise. I arrived at this camp and we were staying in an ex-convent that was still cared for by a bunch of Italian nuns. And it was really beautiful. There was this gorgeous courtyard in the middle with trees and flowers and birds and bees, and these beautiful rooms that we were staying in with arched windows and, you know, old-fashioned heavy wooden doors. And it was really quite glamorous in a way, even though it was sort of sparse. My roommates were Annabelle and Zoe. Annabelle was open and funny and sweet and very much of a sunny disposition, and I could tell that we were going to be good friends. Zoe was a little bit more mysterious. I couldn't quite get a grasp on what she was all about. She was a little bit more reserved, and I guessed that we probably weren't going to be spending too much time together besides the time that we would spend in the room as roommates. But, you know, I didn't I didn't think too much about her, and I just sort of focused on the people that I felt drawn to. So camp started off pretty well. The town that we were in was gorgeous. The setting was amazing amazing. Every class was held in like an old castle-like building. And we were set, you know, in the Italian hillside. And about a week into the camp, something weird started to happen, which was that one day we came into our room and Zoe was sitting on her bed and crying. We said, what happened? What are you so upset about? And she said, I just got this note left on my bed that was really mean. And I don't know who it was from. It wasn't signed, but it just said, "'You suck, and I hate you, and you better watch out.'" Clearly, while we had all been out at class, someone had come into our room and left this threatening note on Zoe's bed. We didn't know if they would target one of us or if they would come in while we were in there. So we were all sort of put on edge by this episode. And Zoe went to one of the counselors and told her what had happened, and, you know, the counselor said, "'You know, okay, you know, we'll look out for more notes.'" A few days went by and we didn't think too much else about it because nothing else happened. So we started to get back into the groove of just going to arts classes and eating lots of pasta and having fun. And then a few days later, we come back and Zoe's not there. And one of the counselors comes by and says, You know, guys, Zoe's really, really upset. She got another threatening note on her bed. Um, it happened while you guys were out at dinner. And we don't know who's doing this, but, you know, we're keeping an eye on a situation. And I guess just keep. People look out for any other weird activity, but there's not much we can do. And we were all really freaked out. We were like, what are we going to do? You know, if this person comes in the middle of the night, there's just a bunch of nuns, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like who is going to protect us from this like evil killer person (laughs) or whatever's going on. So the notes over time started to become a little bit more frequent. And it seemed like every day Zoe was crying over a new mean note that was saying, you know, you suck and I'm coming for you and everybody hates you. We had three or four people in this room and lots of people coming in and out and we couldn't figure out how somebody would find the right time to get in there and leave a note and have nobody see them so the kids in the camp started talking about what could possibly be going on and i remember one time we were sitting around a table in the convent courtyard i was being very inquisitive about it and all of a sudden the conversation sort of turned and because a lot of the kids knew each other from back home, none of them suspected each other. But I was this new person from New York, and they didn't know me as well. And so somehow, all of a sudden, someone said, well, how do we know it's not you doing this? I mean, after all, you live in her room, and you know when people are there and when they aren't, and you know what her routine is better than anyone. Their expressions kind of changed, and they kind of realized, like, yeah, that is a plausible." option since I live with her. And, you know, Annabelle's so nice and so sweet and sunny. How could it ever be her? And I felt shocked. I couldn't believe that anyone would suspect me of this because I had given them no reason to think that it could be me. People started to say, yeah, you know, it could be you. Why would you be so curious about this otherwise? And I, I couldn't believe it. And the frustrating thing about this whole episode was that the counselors were the ones who knew most about this because Zoe kept going to them every time something would happen. They never stepped in to say, guys, this is what's happening. They just sort of said, oh, Zoe got another note. She's very upset. Everybody be careful. So I left that conversation feeling really down because I just felt like I had been unjustly blamed for something that was genuinely scary. Once again, a couple days later, Zoe was really upset. Because this time, the person who was passing her these notes had left the photograph of her grandfather that she had kept in her wallet torn up and left on the pillow of her bed. And this was very significant to her because he had recently passed away and she only had this one picture of him and it was deep in her wallet and her personal belongings. So she said, A, how did this person know that I even had this picture? B, it's the one picture I ever had of him and he just passed away and I feel so vulnerable about this. And how did they know to target that You know, aspect of what I was thinking about, and see, they must have dug through my belongings and taken out my wallet and searched through it and taken out this picture and torn it up and left it right on my bed. This is the last straw. I can't take this anymore. So she went to the counselors again, and I think she was on the brink of going home. So. That was about three-quarters of the way through the program. You know, we were all very, very nervous, and then all of a sudden the notes just stopped coming. Nothing else scary happened to Zoe during the rest of the program, and she just sort of kept to herself, and people sort of forgot about it, and I didn't forget about it because I wanted to be vindicated, and nobody ever came forward and said, nothing's happening, and also JC isn't the one doing this. (laughs) Um, But uh, so we went home, and that was it. My mom ended up becoming friends with the woman who had handled all the American side of the organization for the summer program. Just after college, about four or five years after the program had concluded, the woman who did the organizing for the program, whose name was Dolly, she came to New York, she met up with my mom, and and I met up with her as well. And, you know, I said, how's everything going? She was like, great. And how did you enjoy the program? And I said, well, it was great. But Dolly, I have a question. Do you remember that whole episode with Zoe getting those notes and the torn up picture of her grandfather and all the crying? And no one ever told us anything about what was happening. And she said, oh, yeah, I, I do remember that. You know, that was a big deal. That was sort of an awkward episode, because what was happening is that actually Zoe was doing that to herself. We didn't want to tell anyone because she was already feeling sort of isolated and homesick and upset, and that's why she was doing it. You know, she obviously just wanted some attention or maybe she wanted an excuse to come home, but we knew that she was doing it to herself. So once we figured that out, we just asked her to stop, and we promised her that we wouldn't tell any of the kids so that it wouldn't be awkward for her. And I said, well... Dolly, you do realize I was the only one that people ended up suspecting of leaving the notes for Zoe. From that conversation around the table for the rest of the trip, there was nothing I could do to clear my own name. There was nothing I could say to convince people that I definitely wasn't doing anything. So it turned out that I was the one who got the punishment and she got the attention she wanted.
6: if I believe in ghosts or not. I always kind of want to see one, and I grew up on ghost stories. At Christmas after dinner, Thanksgiving after dinner, you know, eventually when it got dark, people would tell ghost stories. That, that's that, I just thought that's what every family did. And I think that's a Southern thing. Uh, I know other Southern people who, who grew up with that same kind of... The ghosts were just part of the conversation, and, and everybody at least knew somebody who knew somebody who had seen a ghost, and and you would would tell these stories, and it's a great way to grow up, really, really interesting. So I am from a very southern family in a very small town, Murfreesboro, Middle Tennessee. My grandparents house, Uh, my mom's mom and dad, was haunted. Everybody had weird little ghost stories about it. My uncle, Tom Baskin, who's sober, sober fellow, he's like a NRA, volunteer fireman, not a kook, you know, very smart man, said that one time he came to the house during the day, and I guess he was the first one there, and me, mom, and papa weren't there, And when he pulled up, the front door was wide open, which would never happen. You know, my my, my grandfather, it's a safe town, totally safe town, but my grandfather really believed that air conditioning was not free and you, you close the doors always. And so when he saw the door open, he thought murder. And he and then afterwards, I mean, he told me, he said he has no idea why he thought that. He's not, you know, he's a big macho guy. It's just Murfreesboro is safe. But he said he thought murder and was terrified. And then he shook it off and he walked in and he closed the front door. And when he closed the front door, he heard a window open. And so he thought there was a burglar in the house. And so he ran to the back and the window was open, but there was a screen. It was, there, there was a screen over the window And he listened, and there was nobody in the house. And he walked into the kitchen, and he said, is somebody here? And one of the kitchen chairs scooted back from the table and tipped over on the floor. I totally believe them. I believe that that happened. When I was in the house, once, we were sitting around in the den with my grandfather and my brother, and my grandfather was deaf as a post. I never wore hearing aid and he could barely hear. And we were sitting there watching baseball and it sounded like all of the kitchen cabinets fell. Like it was this incredibly loud crash of pots and pans and glasses. And we looked at each other and Papa said, Ah, you didn't hear that. That happens all the time. And we ran up into the kitchen, and everything was fine. There was nothing amiss. My brother's kid, Spencer, gave me, uh, when she was five and a half years old, she gave me a Bible for Christmas as a gift. And she wrote in it, "Uh, Uncle Ben, I hope you have a Merry Christmas... I hope this Bible protects you when you get scared. Hold on tight. I've seen Spencer do two really creepy things. Um, My brother says Spencer sees things all the time, that it's happened at least half a dozen times that she's seen strange things. And I was here for the one, and we were in Roan Mountain, out in my brother's front yard, and Spencer was about seven. And she was uh, playing with all her cousins, and she stopped in the middle of playing and turned towards the woods and said, there's Granny Boo. Bye, Granny Boo. And we all like kind of looked around. Granny Boo was her grandmother on my sister-in-law's side, who was currently, Spencer did not know this, uh, in the hospital in Nashville. And we got the call about five minutes later that Granny Boo had just died, about when Spencer saw Granny Boo in the woods and said goodbye to her. One time when we were in Mima and Papa's house, uh, the haunted one, Spencer was in the back taking a nap and I think we were down with Papa watching TV and Spencer screamed. I thought she'd gotten stung by a bee uh, was the type of scream it was. It was super, super loud and piercing and screaming. We ran back there, and Spencer met us about halfway down the house, and she was bawling, and she was not that young. She was about like eight or nine, maybe. She said, "Uh, there's a man in there, there's a man in there, there's a man in there, there's a man in there. Uh, So my brother and I put her in the den, and I grabbed the axe from the garage, and we went into the bedroom, because we thought there was a guy in there. And there was nobody in there. And the way the house is set up, there's no other way out of the house from the bedroom area without going out through the kitchen. Um, so nobody could have gone out. And so we looked around the house. We looked in the uh, closets, and there was, there was nobody in there. So we figured she had a nightmare. And she still, to this day, cries when she remembers it. She says, uh, there was a guy. He, he was all black. You couldn't see his face. You couldn't see his face. And he was standing in the door with his head tilting up against the door frame at a weird angle. And he was standing at the door and um, looking at her. And we said, well, if you couldn't see his face, how was he looking at you? And she said, he, I just knew, I just knew. And when she woke up, this guy was standing there in the house and we asked Spencer if she'd seen the guy before. And she said she'd seen him three times and every time he got closer. I asked my grandmother before she died, why do you think there's so many ghost stories in Murfreesboro? We knew enough people with ghost stories that I was being kind of a, a dick about it and saying, like, well, like, how can how can there be so many ghosts around here? And Meemaw, who was Church of Christ, said, without even hesitating or stopping washing dishes, she said, it's because all them boys died in the river. That That is a reference to the Battle of Stones River, which was a Civil War battle Christmas of 1864 where 1800 men died in an hour. The south was chasing the north. The north was retreating and they crossed the river and the north went up this big tall hill around the other side of the river and the north stopped retreating and turned their cannons around at this hill. So they were facing right down into the river. The south did not know this. And so as the southern army just ran into this river boom 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 like the the northern army just killed all of them the river was red with blood all the way to memphis and people would come home from the fields from farming and find that men had crawled into their beds and died and crawled across the floor and like sat with their head in the ice box and died that 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 there were dead men all over the place and that's why meemaw said Murfreesboro was was so haunted Uncle Tom will never, ever, ever go in there alone, and I believe him. My grandmother made my grandfather carpet the kitchen floor so that she wouldn't have to listen to the chairs moving around at night. And my papa did not waste money on things like carpet unless it was necessary.
1: This is by Dan Rosen. And after the live story we heard from Kumail and Pete, we heard a track by Jordan Cooper. Cooper and Rosen in the house again. Then we heard J.C. Cassis, who is a very good friend of mine and a remarkable human being. J.C. is a singer and songwriter here in New York. She's a part of the band called XL. You can find her at jccassis.com and excelmusic.com. That's
7: X-E-L-L-E
1: music.com. Then we heard from Ben Grant, as brilliant a man as I have ever known, and like a brother to me too. We call Ben's story, Them Boys. Next up, we have someone who took uh, one of our workshops And I like this story she told at the class show so much, I asked her to come and do it at the Risk Live show in New York. She is just such a sweetheart and super cool former police colonel. She now works at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This is Heidi Rosebrew with a story we call Rookie.
10: So, um, I was sitting at a red light in my police car. Um, I was a rookie officer, it was my first year. Uh, I was 22 years old and it was in Virginia, obviously. And uh, I was waiting for the green light. My shift was ending, I was trying to get back to the station. The light turns green, but I can't go because suddenly from my left side, this kind of uh, young man, he's walking purposely, but slowly across in front of me, and I can't go, and so I'm, I'm a little pissed because I'm in a cop car. It's like, what the hell, man? You <laughs> can't just jaywalk right in front of me, but... Uh... <laughs> and I was new, and you know, I took things personally, but uh, he, he had this blank expression on his face, and he, he didn't seem to notice me, so I'm watching him very closely, and I'm trying to decide if a jaywalking ticket at the end of my shift is going to impress my sergeant at all. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't really think it would, but it's something that they tell you in the academy that um, if you go home at the end of the day and you have a headache from eye strain, from noticing everything around you, then you've done a good job. So at the end of the day, I'm trying to notice everything. So I'm looking at this guy, thinking maybe he's gonna do something else. And I noticed his clothes. He had like a plaid shirt on and another t-shirt on underneath and uh, blue jeans. And he had this long flowy uh, red, bright red hair. And, um, again, he he wasn't looking at me. He was carrying a a backpack and just walking across the street. So I, just as I'm about to decide what to do, and he's crossing my bumper, and I was going to kind of pull over or just keep going, a car from the left side, again, just ran the red light. So all of a sudden I had my decision. I'm like, hey, a red light ticket, that works. Uh, So I tore off after the car and gave that guy a ticket. And all throughout the academy, I was constantly trying to prove myself, constantly trying to just do the best job possible, because you really only have one shot at um, helping people in crisis usually. You know, if you're on a crime scene, you only have really one shot of collecting the evidence or, or not really doing anything terrible to the scene, um, so that was kind of my focus. And I was also trying to impress my sergeant, who was um, a pretty interesting guy. Um, he would, off-duty, at the end of the shift, he would just stick his gun, he'd just pull it right out of his holster, hang his holster up by his desk, and stick it in his back pocket, and then just go and drive home. So, <laughs> like, how are you going to shoot your ass off? Like, you got to be careful. So, uh, well, the next day at, at 5 a.m. roll call, um, he he comes to me. I, I just arrived, and uh, apparently they had gotten a, a call on midnight shift, and they wanted to pass it along to the day work guys, um, me. So uh, he, his name was Sergeant uh, Builder, and he's like, he talked with like his cheeks. He was like, Rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's me. Uh, like, not really. My last name is Rosebrew. But uh, <laughs> that's what they called me. So uh, he's like, you know, there's a DOA just came in and it's waiting for you. It's got your name on it. It's like, oh, great. Um, I hadn't had one yet. I was a rookie, so uh, when there's big calls that go out, you you take them. That's your job. So, um, I was kind of excited but really nervous. It's my first time dealing with a pretty major crime scene. So, I drive to the call and dispatch tells me where it is. It's at a construction site, and they had found a guy hanging. From somewhere, but they couldn't give me more information. Apparently, the person had bad cell service, um, just said there was a body. So, I imagine as I'm driving that it's hanging from like a crane, and I was trying to figure out how I would get it down, and all these, you know, just weird thoughts about how to handle this call. And as I'm driving, I can feel my hands just like tingling, but they're not moving. They're just, I'm steering properly, everything's working, but my hands, I can just feel them. So, I arrive at the, the site and a construction guy waves me down into this ramp, into this underground parking garage of this just finished building. I park my car and I, I try and put on like my most confident business face, um, which to me I think looks determined and um, purposeful, but probably just looks angry So <laughs> to everyone else. And um, I, I walk out into this kind of open garage with lots of pillars of cement and um, there's like fifty to sixty guys, just men, all standing around doing nothing because they can't work because there's a dead person there, apparently, so uh, they all are standing there, and as I 'm walking down, I'm just you know'm marching kind of trying to be confident, and uh, they just all turn at the same time and stare at me, and uh, you know it's intimidating, even when you have a weapon on your belt. <laughs> so I um, kind of fought the urge to run away or stop and like hey guys, or you know, doing things stupid. I just kept walking. <laughs> and uh, I asked one of the guys for who the foreman was, and I found him. He was this kind of meaty-armed uh, guy standing off to the side talking to uh, another guy, and he's got his arms crossed. And I'm really afraid to talk to really a lot of people, but you kind of have to when you're doing this job. So I went up to this guy, and I'm like, hi. Um, well, I thought that I would be confident sounding but I think I sounded more like... Uh, Door of the Explorer, because I said... <laughs> I was like, Hi, I'm Officer Rosebrew from the police. <laughs> and I was like, Did you find a body?
2: <laughs>
10: I'm kind of waiting for him to say, bueno. You know. But he was like... Um, he just looked at me, and I was thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm paused in this, like, moment where I can see what he sees. I'm this, you know, lesbian looking, I have these like black framed square glasses. I don't look like a normal cop, so I get it. Uh, I have this swoopy hair and uh, I have this um, giant, this vest on, it's like making everything genderqueer. So, <laughs> he's just looking at me and he's like, so, I, and I, I just kind of describe myself as like this barrel chested 12 year old boy with like a badge and a gun and I'm like, you know, hi. So I, that's what I assumed confidence of like. <laughs> so he just sort of, uh, he looks at me and goes, yeah, I found it, it's over there. And he just thumbs in this one direction and I, I thought, okay, great. I'm sure I have more questions to ask this guy, but I'm just going to leave and go and find the body because I really don't want to keep talking to him. And uh, so I walk into the direction of his thumb. And it, it's a lot colder. It's, it's, it's springtime, but it's really cold down there. And as I'm walking down, I can feel like the air is a lot colder. I'm worried because I don't know wh- exactly where he's pointing me. He just said around the corner in his thumb, you know. And so I go around this pillar. And as I'm, I'm turning the corner, I'm looking at my feet because I'm afraid that if I step on evidence, I'll be, you know, just murdered by my sergeant. So I, um, I'm looking at my feet, and I turn the corner. And right as I... I, I pick my head up. As I'm passing the corner, um, my, I feel my face and my cheek hit something. <laughs> just, <laughs> just boom, like that. And I'm like, oh, excuse me. For body? <laughs> There's like a body. <laughs> I thought it was a person. It's obviously it is, but it's, you know, the, the body. It's like, Oh my God. So I back up and I put my hands up and, you know, sort of Look at it and it's swinging now. It's like, oh my god, I just, I just fucking touched this dead body <laughs> and I just contaminated this crime scene. It's swinging. Like, what did I do to this thing? Um, you know, did I? I'm thinking of all these things in, in the academy that they taught you, you know, not to do. So, like, did I cause more injury to his neck from like the, you know, moving thing? And did I um, touch anything with my fingers? Like, was there a button that I might have gotten my prints on or did my cheek? you know, put any DNA on his shirt, like, oh my God. And then I thought about like how it actually felt on my cheek and I was a little kind of grossed out. Um, The only way I can describe it is like frozen chicken breast package and you wrap a towel around it and that's how hard it was. It was very, and yeah, so I was thinking, oh, should I touch my cheek? So, okay. So there it is, there's the, the body, and as I look around, my agent, um, we call him an agent, it's a crime scene technician, he comes down, just as I realize that nobody really did see me do that, so that's good, um, and he starts to walk me through the scene, and we find the things about the scene that, you know, lead us to believe it was a suicide, like, uh, he's hanging from the scaffolding and on the railing near where he would have stepped off is a lot of dust and it was disturbed there where he had, I guess, stood to tie the rope and then later was uh, stepping off. And then we found his note, his suicide note was written on the inside a cardboard piece of like a Budweiser beer um, 24 pack. And it basically, the gist of it was he was, a, he called himself a nomadic drug addict and uh, he was really upset about all the trouble he'd cause his girlfriend and his family, so he was just sort of taking himself out. And as we're looking through all this stuff, I find his bag, and in his bag there's a book, and it's uh, called Postmortem, and it's by an author that I I really like. It's actually my favorite author, so I thought that was kind of, you know, weird and interesting. Inside the book there was a, a photo of him smiling, and he's got his arm around a girl, and I recognize the girl actually as someone who went to my college. Um, but I didn't know her very well, I just knew her face. So, again, I'm thinking of all these things like this guy's kind of, you know, he's just striking me. And he's also very young. When I looked at him, he probably maybe a year or two younger than me. I was only 22. So, um, you know, I'm thinking about all these things, but I don't think I can tell this this crime scene agent guy this. Because, I mean, you're not supposed to really think about um, any kind of emotional anything when you're dealing with crime scenes. You're just supposed to go through them. And I didn't want him to think that I was weak or that I couldn't do it. So. After uh, a little while, the agent says, okay, uh, we got to cut him down now, and you're going to help me. I was like, okay, uh, what does that mean? He goes, okay, well, I've got to cut the rope and preserve it in a certain way, so that means you got to hold the body. And I'm like, oh, he's hanging from, like, pretty high up. I'm, my face comes up to his lower stomach, and uh, I'm like, okay, like, what exactly do I need to do? He goes, well, you're just going to have to bear hug it. I was like, oh. again. LAUGHTER <So. laughs> I was like, "All oh, right." so here I am, again, I'm, I'm like cheek pressed against his shirt and I'm feeling the, the chicken breast feeling and just like holding him and I look up because I want to kind of gauge when the, the weight is going to change when he's finally cut loose. So I'm looking up at him and as I'm looking I can see that his, um, his neck is actually elongated, which happens if you um, are hanging for a while and it's, it looks disgusting and, uh, and I can see his eyes are actually not fully closed and that was pretty spooky too because um, it's looking right at me so like but and I could see his eye color I mean there's details everywhere it's like blue eyes but like death kind of makes your eyes look cloudy and gray so behind that was his blue eyes and then I looked and I could see something kind of like a dot in my field of vision and um, couldn't figure out what it was and didn't really have time to, but I could tell it was kind of close to where my eye was. And I'm like, what is that? And all of a sudden the rope is cut and I have to slide him down my body and like hold him straight up. And he's stiff as a board, so it's not too hard, but it's like slide him down my body. And it's very gross and he's cold. And, uh, but I feel bad for him, so I want to do the right thing and I'm not trying to make a scene. So uh, I have to wait for my agent to come down and help me uh, lay him down finally. So as I, I'm standing here sort of holding him, like his face is right above mine, he's a little bit taller than me, I can see why, uh, what that thing was in my field of vision, a little dot, and I realize it's a, uh, an icicle of drool had like, formed on his lip and it was hanging down right above where my eye was and it was really gross. So I uh, luckily didn't touch it at all, thank God, but when the the agent came by, we laid him down and got a body bag ready and I, started, I actually looked at him and realized, oh my god, I recognize this kid. He had really bright red hair, like flowy hair. I was kind of like, stunned and I was actually upset with myself too because we're supposed to be trained observers and I didn't realize it was the same uh, person from before because uh, his hair was so distinctive too. But I also thought how sad that he, um, you know, that he had died and that I saw him the day before. And then I kind of realized where we are exactly. This parking garage is right at the intersection where I had been sitting the night before, the afternoon before, where he walked in front of my car. And the entrance to the garage is the exact same intersection. So he was walking literally like to go die. And he found this cold and empty and like just Place because it was a Sunday night that he killed himself, and nobody works on the construction site that day. And uh, so I was, you know, just sort of trying not to lose anything. Like I wasn't gonna cry, I don't think, but I was just very much like, oh my god. But I didn't tell the agent again. I just didn't really want them to think that I was too personally involved or anything. So I didn't say anything. Um, But then I thought, like, oh my, you know what? What would have happened if I would have stopped him Um, and gave him a jaywalking ticket? Um, You know, would he've? Would we have had something to talk about? Like maybe he would have been like, "Yeah, I'm totally interested in criminal justice too." And you know, maybe we would have hit it off and like (laughs) (laughs) something, and uh, would have been good that came of it. Maybe he would have been okay with like the attention from somebody. Maybe that would have helped him. But then I also thought like maybe. Um, A jaywalking ticket from a cop who looked really angry when she was trying to be confident would probably be um, more upsetting for his his day, so (laughs) thank you.
1: This is Fever Ray behind me. They're at FeverRay.com. That brings us to the end of our icky show. Today is the day, folks. Take a risk. That's e or no? That's
2: <laughs>
1: sorry. I be- became a, uh, a water lion there. <laughs>